Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No Trump. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaign. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW Talknet. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. Well, Washington, D.C. is still on lockdown, but there's a lot going on. Our Supreme Court has gone rogue on certain issues. I'll talk about that, both on anti-discrimination issues and on the core issue of our nation's sovereignty and the right of the president to uh, uh, control immigration under law. Com- completely outrageous decisions in both areas. So I'll give you my reaction there. Uh, we have uh, uh, some interesting information that I've been meaning to share with you, but because of Facebook's recent censorship issues targeting the president, I thought it was important to raise now uh, about who's involved with Facebook. And you won't be surprised to find out the big name behind their new censorship board, or at least the big name behind many of the people on the censorship board uh, that Facebook is running. And of course, we still have the continued crisis with the insurrection against our country in Seattle and elsewhere. And I have a few views on that as well. But first up is the rule of law crisis caused by out of control Supreme Court decisions in the last week. We had two decisions come down. One related to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Title VII provision that prohibits discrimination because of uh, race and sex and and other immutable characteristics. And uh, the Supreme Court was considering the issue as to whether or not uh, being uh, either uh, homosexual or uh, transgendered Uh, fit the definition of sex under the law. Now, if you're a common sense type of person like I am, you would recognize that when in 1964, Americans voted this law into place, they understood the definition of sex to be really specific and biological, meaning you can't be discriminated on the basis of being a woman or a man. Now, the Supreme Court, in a majority opinion written by the alleged conservative jurist, Judge Gorsuch, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and the uh, other liberals on the court, not that Roberts is always liberal, he's uh, impossible to pin down, uh, except on political cases like this, obviously, uh, they decided to rewrite this anti-discrimination law. You know, typically laws, well, not typically, under our Constitution, laws are to be changed by the legislative process. Congress is supposed to change the law, and then obviously the president signs it. That's the way our Congress and the executive branch is supposed to work. And for the Supreme Court of the United States to come in really over, was it 50, I guess nearly 60 years after the fact, and decide a law that has been read specifically to not cover gays and transgender, was designed to cover gays and transgender by the very language, uh, is uh, the height of um, judicial arrogance and legislating. 
And uh, as I as I highlighted in our statement uh, about the issue, they undermine the rule of law today. It's been a years long battle, by the way, by the left to actually change the law legislatively to expand it to include bans on discrimination because of someone's uh, uh, sexual orientation or, or, or uh, gender identity. And the reason that hasn't happened is because the consequences of that have been, would be dramatic socially in a ways that would be, that would be objectionable to many, many Americans. So the Supreme Court today short-circuited the democratic process and rewrote the law without a vote by Congress, but with a vote by unelected judges. I mean, and as I said, it wasn't like Congress uh, didn't know what this issue was about. They were considering it repeatedly. We had filed an amicus curiae brief. That's called a, friend, that's, no, a fancy way of calling it a friend of court brief. These are these briefs that uh, groups and sometimes individuals file with courts to help them educate them on issues in a case. And uh, Judicial Watch's brief uh, detailed how Congress repeatedly rejected efforts to amend the law. There were 71 bills over 45 years that attempted to include sexual orientation or gender identity in the definition of sex. And as we wrote, it's singularly unpersuasive after all those bills have failed to argue that these categories were in there all along. Any such statute should be passed by Congress, not ordered by the court. You know, and as Justice Alito warned, today's decision, unless, uh, unless uh, fixed by Congress, and Congress can fix this, and that's a big if, if they'll do anything, could destroy women's sports, weaken religious freedom and free speech, weaken personal privacy, and cause chaos in the schools. Because just think about this, you're, in many ways they're undermining the protections of sex by blowing up the definition like the court did. It means that any male wanting to participate in female-related activities that ex traditionally exclusively have been barred to males, and vice versa, obviously, could be thrown out the window. So a male wants to participate in field hockey that's played by females, that can happen. Male wants to participate in let's say strength sports that have been that that are only limited to women be to uh, to uh, uh, make up for the difference in uh, the relative strengths of the sexes. What would be the limit on that? Same sex bathrooms, do, do they go out the door? Can you prohibit any any person from entering any bathroom? Same sex dorms. Will there be diversity requirements and quotas for uh, people of a minority sexual orientation and transgender status? I mean, and the transgender status, um, as you know, I mean, that's controversial just scientifically. So who are you discriminating against when a male identifies as a female or a female identifies as a male? Well, how is that sex discrimination? You're, you're, I, you're discriminating against the male because of 
his sex or because of something other than sex, which is his behavior or inclination? I mean, the court is uh, pricked uh, a, a uh, kind of just kind of blow up a very complex social debates. And of course, then there's the First Amendment. You know, the First Amendment, you know, it used to be important. It protected your right to your own conscience. So will it be free, uh, you know, uh, religious rights exemptions? If a church disapproves of that conduct and behavior, will they be able to hire people who share their uh, religious worldview? It's all going to have to be litigated. And so, you know, my fear is that, you know, when decisions like this come down the pike, uh, because this vote comes up repeatedly in Congress and some Republicans hate having to go against the cultural wave in favor of increased rights uh, uh, based on sexual orientation and gender identity. I mean, the gender identity thing, it's, it's almost um, a totalitarian outlook. You're, you're be, you know, people are being attacked and thrown off Twitter and attacked uh, or, or, or boycotted because uh, they question some of the underlying assumptions. I mean, practically speaking, is it going to be illegal to have moral objections to these uh, uh, to these behaviors? Is it going to be illegal? I don't know. I mean, the court admitted that these issues are going to come up, but they don't have to decide those now. So we'll just be litigating this for more. So this judicial activism, this judicial supremacism is just going to lead under Judge Gorsuch's analysis to more judicial meddling in the organization of our society, the core issues of biology and sex. I mean, they think the left has told us we have a right to privacy. That all went out the window with this decision. You don't have a right to privacy anymore. You don't. In your thinking. And on core issues related to where you go to the bathroom, you don't even have the right to privacy. That's how crazy this is. That's how crazy this is. And the left is all excited about it. And it just shows you the left doesn't care about the Constitution. I mean, rather than trying to persuade people to change the law, however objectionable, you know, we might, we might disagree. It may not even be constitutional what they plan to do in terms of changing the, the, the anti-discrimination law, because as I said, of the First Amendment issues. You can't statutorily overturn a constitutional amendment. But that being said, that was the process. Instead, you had the process short-circuited uh, by six unelected judges. And, um, you know, I, I tweeted out this issue uh, the other day, and um, it's really disturbing to see uh, the lack of leadership we're getting from Congress in response to this. In many ways, they're kind of a little bit shell-shocked, so I understand that because no one 
or I should say few people were uh, expecting this. Uh, but this is an attack on our Republican form of government. It's an attack on, on Congress's prerogatives under the Constitution and frankly under any fair system of self-government to do the legislating. And so, you know, I know um, many of our conservatives friends and, you know, I'm upset about this decision, you know, because we work and work and work to make sure justices that uh, uh, are strict constructionists, originalists get on the bench. And then you have results oriented jurisprudence like the the Gorsuch garbage that came out earlier this week. I mean, Gorsuch, you know, nine times out of 10, I agree with him. But it's quite obvious he had a social agenda, a political agenda, and he needed to find a way to get it achieved. And he was willing to, um, you know, uh, break, break the system to do so. You know, I forgot, I was joking with someone the other day. I said, I forgot how awful June is because every June you have all these decisions come down from the Supreme Court, some of which are good and you're relieved by, others of which are assaults on our Republican form of government. And you had this here with the Gorsuch decision. And uh, Congress, of course, has the ability to fix this. What is it that Congress can do? Well, Congress can pass a piece of legislation that says the Supreme Court is wrong. When we wrote sex into the law, we didn't mean what the Supreme Court pretends it means. And it would end there. You know, uh, there, we've got the significant problem with uh, judicial supremacism. And it's not so much the supremacism, and because courts are going to, you know, they've got this awful power. I don't mean awful in the sense of negative, but really, uh, under the under this current model of jurisprudence uh, that too many judges uh, subscribe to, it's it's really wide ranging and and um, you know, in many ways, the final say uh, in how our laws are interpreted and applied, or in some cases like this, even made. But that's not the way it has to be. You know, the founding fathers were brilliant. They came up with a system where you had three branches of government, all of which were balanced. Uh, they call it the checks and balances. Uh, that was the name uh, that scholars came up before. And so each, each branch was check checked and balanced by other branches. So when you had the Supreme Court or the judge or courts um, going outside their lane, so to speak, or going rogue, you had opportunities to fix it by the executive and legislative branches. The problem now recently is they've refused to do that. Or I shouldn't say they have. Conservatives have refused to do that. So I suspect that, as I said, many Republicans are going to be breathe a sigh of relief that they don't have relief that they don't have to vote on this. They hate voting on these issues, and now the Supreme Court has taken it off their plate. Same with gay marriage. The Supreme Court redefined gay marriage or redefined marriage to include same-sex relationships. A radical abrogation of power. Radical. And I mean abrogation of power that 
resides with the people. Congress did nothing about it. They did absolutely nothing about it. So when, when the Supreme Court makes a radical redefinition of a statute or re, essentially rewrites it, Congress can come in and fix it. Obviously, the president will have to sign a law, but that's the check and balance. So the problem with judicial supremacism is the other branches haven't stepped up to exercise their constitutional prerogatives to restrain the judiciary when it gets out of control. And that's not what the founding fathers intended. So if I were you, I would call Congress up and demand that your elected representatives fix it. Fix it. I mean, one of the cases that was before the court, there was a funeral home director, family-run business, it sounds like, who had an employee who decided that he was going to start dressing as a woman at, during work hours and showing up to work as a woman. And this man is working with grieving families, and he thought that was inappropriate. And he thought about it and thought about it. It wasn't like he did it lightly. He said, you can't do it. You know, you either have to go or do something else. And now the United States Supreme Court is telling that man, no, you got to do it. Doesn't matter how you run your business. And as I said, these are immutable characteristics that are traditionally protected in civil rights law sex, race, national origin. I mean, I don't even understand the philosophy. I don't even understand how the law would work given the radical changes in, um, you know, the radical analysis I hear uh, from the left on, on these sexual identity issues. They talk about fluidity. What does that mean? It means that you may identify as one sex one period of time and another sex another period of time or no sex at all. How, how is it you manage that in terms of anti-discrimination? Don't worry, courts will figure it out. You know, my first reaction to this was, you know, what suckers we are. You know, you thought your vote counted, didn't you? You thought you ran your government. Well, these six justices unelected, appointed for life, they basically told you, go jump in a lake if you think you run your government. It's a terrible assault on our Republican form of government. I don't, I don't know, um, you know, what the administration's going to do. Are they going to push for legislation? Call the White House. Tell them what you think. You know, these Supreme Court decisions happen. They're awful, and no one wants to do anything about them. And in the meantime, as just year after year, our freedom and our rights to self-government fritter away under constant assault. You know, and, and Justice Gorsuch, you know, I'm, I, I've supported Justice Gorsuch's nomination. I supported Chief Justice, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' nomination. I mean, the next time there's a nomination for, for by an allegedly conservative jurist, I mean, you know, the lesson there is maybe everyone just shuts up because you don't know how they're going to vote.
unless you get explicit promises. You know, the other check on judicial abuse is the impeachment power. Oh, whoa. whoa. I'm sure this video is even getting, it's going to get censored because I said the word. But that's a check. Congress doesn't want to exercise it. I think they exercised it once against or attempted to exercise it once in the 19th century against the jurist, the judge. Didn't go anywhere. So the thinking is, well, we can't do it. Well, it's not what the Constitution says. I don't have the language in front of me, but one of the founders, you know, pointed to the impeachment power specifically as an impeach as a as a check on abuses of power, just like this by judges. Now, does it mean I think that the judges need to be impeached every time they do something wrong? No. But certainly we can talk about it. We're not allowed to talk about it, though. I mean, I raised this and, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. So I go to these conservative legal meetings and, you know, I cause some trouble because I say things that lawyers typically don't say. And I sometimes talk about impeachment for judges. So there are these checks and it's all fear based decision-making too often in Congress and the executive branch. So we had this outrageous decision by Justice Gorsuch signed by five other justices to legislate from the bench, to legislate from the bench, pretending to be textualist by saying, well, you know, the def you know, sex says what it says and, you know, and, and engaging in pages and pages of sophistry to tell you that you can't believe your lying eyes and what your good sense tells you. The idea that when those uh, individuals in 1964 passed this bill, this is the language they used, you know, just because they had a failure of imagination of how the word would be used, it doesn't mean that we, it doesn't prohibit us from changing the definition of the word. Terrible arrogance, terrible arrogance. So um, what next? Congress should fix it. I don't know. <laughs> you know, they're not going to, they're obviously not going to, you know, even impeaching the judges isn't going to change the decision because the decision's out there. It highlights also the importance of getting good nominees to the bench. I don't have any specifically brilliant ideas on how to make sure that you know, uh, Judge Gorsuch, for instance, who has all indications that he'd probably good, be a good Supreme Court judge, how to, how to make sure that he wouldn't rule this way or, make, you know, get an assurance is that he wouldn't abuse the powers entrusted him by, to him by the American people to impose his uh, personal beliefs on us. You know, so you've got you to do everything. You just can't rely on the judges to protect you from uh, the crazed left or bad policies. You know, Judge Bork, and I encourage you to go back and read this book, Judge Bork, who's passed away. He had a book called The Tempting of America. And he made the point, and, and the theory of the book was that, you know, judges are, because of the position they're put in and the sort of de deference they're given in our constitutional system, at least currently, uh, there's this awful temptation for them to mistake 
their personal views for the law. And they call it the tempting of America. And it's something that a liberal jurist can fall into. And frankly, it's something that a conservative jurist could fall into. Now, let me give you an example. You know, um, Roe versus Wade, uh, in my view, was a terrible decision. It, it uh, found in the Constitution the right to abortion through the entire nine months of pregnancy if you can get a doctor to do it. Now, it was, since has been mitigated a little bit by subsequent decisions, but the core ruling is still out there. So what, you know, uh, those of us who believe in the right to life for unborn children, removing Roe versus Wade doesn't necessarily make those rights enshrined in the Constitution. You arguably would have to change the Constitution to expand the right to life protections or change state laws constitutions to extend right to life to protections to, to uh, the unborn. And I, and I would debate this because I don't know the answer to it, but would it be appropriate for a conservative jurist to read into the constitution that the right to life um, must now be applied to unborn human beings? See, I, you see, that's what my point is. It works both ways. So we got to be cautious. And, um, you know, we had six justices, six justices attack our Republican form of government. You know, they rewrote civil rights law. It was an exercise of raw judicial power to change the definition of sex. I mean, does it get much worse than that? You know, and, and legislating from the bench is an abuse of power. And I'm sorry. But, you know, we're worried about the attack on our republic from rioters and looters and the insurrectionists in the streets. And we see this week in the Supreme Court, our republic and our rule of law can be attacked by judicial activists on the bench. The other decision that came out, which was also awful, is the result of Chief Justice Roberts, who sided with the four uh, avowed liberals on the court, uh, he essentially said that this uh, deferred action program, the amnesty, the DACA dreamer amnesty that President Obama illicitly in, uh, implemented, is um, can't, couldn't be undone by President Trump, or at least the way President Trump sought to undo it. So essentially, an illegal move by Obama was found to be, excuse me, it was found that President Trump illegally moved to remove an illegal rule by Obama. That's Alice in Wonderland decision-making from the Supreme Court again. You know, that deferred action for childhood admissions, I think, and childhood arrivals is amnesty. It's outright amnesty, and it's amnesty directed at, at you know, narrowly, which of course isn't true, at, at um, individuals who came here illegally with their parents before a certain age, almost all of whom are now in their 20s and 30s, many of whom have been arrested for, too many of whom have been arrested for serious crimes. And it's amnesty. 
Congress had the ability, and they're constantly being asked to provide amnesty for this subcategory of illegal aliens, and they've re refused to. I think amnesty is terrible. It's a terrible idea. And in many ways, amnesty for the children of illegal aliens, frankly, the illegal alien children of illegal aliens, is the worst form of amnesty. Why is that? Because that's the, if you're, if you're looking to reward a powerful incentive, there's no more powerful incentive to come to this country illegally, in my view, than that if you get here, your children will become US citizens, even though they are citizens of another country. That you are guaranteed, practically speaking, your children will become a, a, a citizens. So if you want to guarantee uh, increased illegal immigration, I mean, we see it, we saw this with the caravans, the unaccompanied minor program. Do you think that wasn't tied to DACA? Of course it was. But Chief Justice Roberts undermined the Constitution again. You know, Obama's decision to provide amnesty for hundreds of thousands, I think the number, last number I checked was 700,000, was unlawful, and the court interfered with the president's duty, President Trump's duty, an absolutely, absolute right to rescind it. And what the court essentially said was he didn't follow the rules in rescinding regulations, as if this was an, a, a normal regulation, and then, of course, he applied rules that really don't fairly apply to this type of situation where the government's correcting illegal action. It's absurd analysis. It's absolutely absurd. It's illegal for President Trump to end an illegal program. I mean, that's, that's the state of the modern left judiciary today. You know, and I said I supported Chief Justice Roberts. I think, you know, I'm even on TV supporting him. So I can't, you know, I can't pretend it didn't happen. But I remember when he was up for his nomination, and this is under President uh, George W. Bush. He said, you know, he's going. He you know he doesn't think judges should call. Uh, you know, shouldn't play in the game. They should. They should be umpires, just calling balls and strikes. Well, Chief Justice Roberts, he broke his promise because he ain't no umpire. Frankly, as I said on Twitter, he's banging the garbage cans in the dugout. That's what he's doing. And what do I'm referencing that cheating scandal down in Texas where players were banging garbage cans to signal. The planned pitches for the opposing team. He's got his thumb on the scales. He's playing the game. He's interfering with the game. He is not an umpire. And again, so what next? The president's going to have to go through the process again. And, you know, my view, the way the decision is written, the writing's on the wall. They're going to come up with another reason to stop it. Because there's talk about whether these uh, illegal aliens, quote, relied on this illegal activity by Obama, whether they can be fairly have their uh, right right to remain here, which isn't a right under law, it's just a right entered by fiat by Obama. Taken away.
you know, and the president smartly tweeted, he said, well, this is extraordinary, provides extraordinary power to a president because it looks to him like a president could put whatever policy he wanted into place and the following president really couldn't undo it easily, whether or not it was legal or not. You know, my response to that was, oh, no, no, that's not the way it works. Because there's a different set of rules for President Trump. This was an anti-Trump decision in addition to being a political decision. Chief Justice Roberts has this nasty habit of changing the rules when it comes to Donald Trump. He did this similarly with the census decision. Do you remember that? Where the administration made, uh, did something that has been done repeatedly over the years, which is to try to add a question to the census about someone's citizenship status. The left is desperate to keep you in the dark about how many aliens are present in the United States. So they sued the administration quite aggressively. And of course the courts let them do that. And Chief Justice Roberts completely changed the rules on how to analyze decision-making by the executive branch in that regard. It used to be there was this presumption of irregularity and that you couldn't get behind the decision-making. Well, the court said no. They, they changed the rules for Trump and said they could get behind it and they were going to overturn it because they didn't like the alleged basis for the decision. And rather than fight it, the administration caved. They completely caved. Because the deep staters said, oh, it's too late for us to, you know, to get the census, you know, to be able to do the census and then still fight about this issue. We just got to get it done. And they caved. And they gave, the, apparently, they, I think they gave the other sides millions of dollars in legal fees too, your tax dollars, after caving. So, uh, and then, of course, Chief Justice Roberts also, by the way, upheld practically speaking, uh, these discriminatory shutdown orders targeting unfairly religious institutions. I mean, it used to be that uh, you couldn't specifically target religious institutions in a discriminatory fashion. Chief Justice Roberts said, oh, yes, you can because coronavirus. I mean, you see across the country, these uh, totalitarian leftist governors, because that's what they've become with their coronavirus shutdowns, endorsing and approving mass demonstrations in the, in the war on police. But Lord forbid, A church has more than 25 members or 25% capacity. They could get shut down. It used to be rules like that would have been thrown out as being in violation of the First Amendment right to freely exercise your religion. But not with Justice Roberts. So we need better judges. We need more conservative judges on the bench. And we need a more we need a legislative and executive branch that's willing to defend their constitutional roles. And of course, you need to be alert to these issues because this will happen, and they don't want to ask you what you think. 
do you think your member of Congress is going to raise this at a town hall about, oh, should we uh, take on the most, one of the most powerful special interest cultural movements in the country by reestablishing our right to govern ourselves by saying no, the anti-discrimination law applies only on the basis of sex and not sexual orientation and gender identity. You think they're going to raise that in a town hall? No, you got to bring it up. You got to bring it up. You got to call them. Call your senators, call your congressmen. 202-225-3121, 202-225-3121. So between DACA, which is amnesty. By the way, DACA is a terrible amnesty and because um, not only is it illegal, uh, but because it was illegal, they broke all the all sorts of other rules. You may recall that Obama promised that, oh, you know, we'd make sure that all these people are on the up and up who get this amnesty. And by the way, they have granted citizenship to DACA amnesty recipients. It wasn't just deferred removal. No, they allowed some of these folks to get green cards and many of them became citizens. So it's full-blown amnesty. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And Judicial Watch investigated whether they were doing the actual background checks that were promised. And we found that they abandoned the illegal alien background checks. We exposed that back in 2015, 2013, six years ago. Was that six years ago? No, it's seven years ago. This is in a series of agency memos beginning, beginning in September 14, 2012, field offices were told to expect the National Benefit Center which collects the DACA applications to conduct only, quote, lean and light background checks on illegal alien applicants. And that henceforth, uh, the, the benefit center would perform, will not perform full text checks on any or any evidence review on these cases before we ship to the field. So that means they weren't doing real background checks. That's what that meant. Now we have these illegal aliens involved in demonstrations against our country. But only in, only in this day and age that the president trying to reestablish the law, reestablish the rule of law, you had the court actively interfere. And when you look at how, what happened is you had the original DACA amnesty and then the Obama gang saw they got away with that. So they took it a step further and they increased the, uh, expanded the amnesty, I think for specifically the family members of the illegal alien children who really weren't children anymore. And the, some, some states sued to stop that saying that's not appropriate. And what happened? They won. And rather than litigating that issue specifically and pushing it, um, uh, uh, taking the logic of that victory and challenging DACA, the states gave up. But Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, the Justice Department, looked at that decision and said, well, this applies to DACA. We got to stop it under law. So the 
Trump administration was enforcing a Supreme Court decision that said this type of activity was illegal, and we just had the Supreme Court said they couldn't do it that way. Again, Alice in Wonderland. So I've talked oftentimes here about the assault on our First Amendment rights through uh, big tech censorship. And you know, the response I always get back is, oh no, it's not, it's not censorship if private companies do it. Well, A, legally that isn't necessarily true, and B, practically speaking, it isn't true because a lot of these tech censorship operations are uh, being uh, directed and targeted at President Trump and conservatives and groups like Judicial Watch at the, assist at the insistence of government officials who benefit from the censorship. Uh, most specifically, we had the inability to talk about the name of the alleged whistleblower who was part of the Kookaball with Adam Schiff. If I mentioned his name here right now, YouTube would take the video down. Facebook would take the video down, not because the law requires it, but because they bought into arguments by corrupt government officials like Adam Schiff that the name should not be public. Similarly, Facebook is also being um, uh, challenged, uh, and they do too much censorship of conservatives, but they don't want to do as much as the left wants them to do in terms of regulating and taking down ads and, and uh, other uh, material they don't like. And they are specifically outraged that they're not censoring political ads. And they don't mean leftist political ads, they mean Donald Trump. So sure enough, just recently censorship did occur. Facebook caved and did take down a political ad by Donald Trump because he allegedly used an image that Antifa uses in an ad attacking Antifa and violent demonstrators. And they said it was a hate symbol completely. Again, Alice in Wonderland logic. And you know, the question is who's behind this? Who internally does this type of work? Now they use oftentimes in the attacks on Facebook, on Judicial Watch, they do quote fact checks, which essentially is liberal opinions attacking Judicial Watch. It's not fact checking, it's just, uh, the uh, uh, an effort to uh, take down information they don't like by arguing about it, as opposed to saying there's something factually wrong. I mean, we're pretty darn careful. We're we're, we're factual, so it's not really fact checking. It's just liberals uh, pretending to fact check in order to suppress information they don't like. And this week we saw that with the Federalist, a news a news publication, and a website called Zero Hedge, where you had NBC running, I think, to Google based on specious allegations of, quote, hate speech or something like that from some unknown left-wing crank in Great Britain. So you had NBC News, who, by the way, is a competitor with the Federalists, is a competitor with conservatives that they try to suppress, actually actively go and try to pressure Google to, quote, demonetize the Federalists. Now, if you track the Federalists online, you know, it's a critique of the, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's um, you know, they are journalists that focus on critiquing the deep state, exposing the worst corruption scandal in American history, and taking a different approach than the anti-Trump media that is now controlling much of our political discourse. 
So NBC News tried to destroy their competitor. I mean, I, I was interested to know that I saw, you know, obviously everyone focused on Google and Google backtracked a little bit, but I was, I was focusing on the fact, well, can NBC legally do that type of activity under our antitrust and anti-false, anti, uh, um, you know, unfair competition laws? Justice Department should investigate that. I don't know. There are probably lawyers watching this who are probably thinking, huh, I wonder what happened. I wonder if that's true or not. Well, I would encourage you to research it. So I think it might be true that there might be a case, certain something to investigate. Was it anti-competitive? Is it is this anti-competitive activity that's barred by our antitrust laws? I don't know. But they're targeting competitors. You know, we think it's always philosophy. Well, maybe it's just money. Maybe it's just money. So Facebook, in reaction to this pressure to uh, censor everything that's being posted, um, based on rules that the left has set out, has uh, created what is called a, what I'm calling a censorship board, and they have these independent. It's supposedly independent and. You know, they've kind of semi-bound to implementing its decisions. And if you don't like decision-making or you got complaints, you can go to the censorship board. Well, guess who has significant ties to most of the members on the board? George Soros. The left-wing billionaire uh, who has a really a radical agenda. And he's, he's a pretty influential character uh, with this board. So now effectively, you've got George Soros, and it's not necessarily him personally, but that, that worldview is now controlling the majority of the Facebook censorship board. How do you think Judicial Watch is gonna do with that board? How do you think the president's gonna do with that board? How do you think you're gonna do with that board? So we did a deep dive into the named members. They've got a few, they've got one or two nominal conservatives, actually some pretty good people on the board. You know, Facebook has been, you know, they've been far from perfect, but they're, they, uh, they're under tremendous pressure to be even, to go full totalitarian against conservatives. That's pretty clear. As our uh, Corruption Chronicle blog details, the censorship board is stacked with leftists, including a close friend of left-wing billionaire George Soros, who served on the board of directors of his Open Society Foundation. That's his main vehicle for funding the radical left. I think he transferred 18, I'm going off my, I'm going off memory here, so double check me, $18 billion to the foundation. It's an incredible amount of money. Incredible amount of money. Andra Shaho, S-A-J-O, is the founding dean of legal studies at Soros's Central European University. He was a judge at the European Court of Human Rights for nearly a decade, and he served on the board of directors of the Open Society Foundation's Justice Initiative. He was one of the judges in an Italian case that ruled unanimously that the display of a crucifix in public schools in Italy 
violates the European Convention on Human Rights. So we've got an anti-Christian Soros acolyte on the Facebook censorship board. The decision, thankfully, was subsequently overturned. At least 10 other members of the Facebook Oversight Board are connected to leftist groups tied to Soros that have benefited from his generous donations, according to our research. Alan Rusperger, a former newspaper editor from Britain and principal Oxford University, serves on the board of directors of the Committee to Protect Journalists, which received uh, three quarters of a million dollars from the Open Society Foundation in 2018. They co-hosted, one of his organizations co-hosted a conference with Open Society on change in the Middle East and North Africa. Another human rights attorney is the program manager for Soros' Open Society Initiative for West Africa. Her research includes critical race feminism and socioeconomic rights of the poor. Sounds like a traditional hardcore leftist. An Indian lawyer and civil society activist runs a progressive nonprofit called Center for Law and Public Law and Policy Research that focuses on transgender rights, gender equality, and public health. And she indirectly gets money from foundation through a third, another group that had received one and a half million dollars or so from the Open Society Foundation between 2016 and 18. And she also gets, gets money from this radical group called the Center for Reproductive Rights that promotes abortion on demand, also a, a, a Soros grant recipient. So I could go on and on with the names, but you're getting the point, aren't you? Radical leftists, many of whom aren't even Americans, trying to figure out how the First Amendment applies here in the United States. So I know the uh, administration is considering undoing or restricting the liability protections these big companies have that allow them to censor with much, not much of any consequence. I'm not quite sure how the law should go there. It's been my initial impression that um, as long as they be, as long as they are doing this type of radical censorship and policing the material on their boards beyond the sort of basic um, uh, rules against you know sex, uh, I mean pornography and violence, and you know advocating specific violent acts, they're not really protected by the law because they're not acting as bulletin board managers, they're acting as publishers with all the attendant liabilities. Now, the irony is that if that's the case, they will, in theory, be able to censor all sorts of people. But on the other hand, if they are considered kind of like the manager of an airport or a mall where there's kind of a quasi 
public component of that private space that allows First Amendment protected activity, it may be they have to stop censoring conservatives, which is all what we want. And as I said before, you know, the reason this is happening is because we're winning. I mean, NBC News and all these leftists, like, you know, Hillary Clinton's calling on, for instance, the censorship of Trump. I mean, this is a very political. It's because they're losing. And when you lose, if you're a leftist, what do you do? You cheat. You violate the Constitution. You break the law. You suppress your opposition. That's what the left does. They don't want to have debates. They just want to win. They will pretend to believe in debates so that they can win, but if debating gets in the way and they can get away with it, they'll skip it. You see that with the Supreme Court. You see them with tearing down statues. You see the left tearing down statues. We can have a debate about what statues should be where. We are a republic after all, we get to decide things like that, as long as it doesn't impact pub private property in a unconstitutional way. They don't wanna have a debate, they just wanna exercise raw power and they'll do it under the threat of violence, it's clear. And, um, you know, and I wanna end with a call to action for you as well is to demand that Congress support the police, demand that the executive branch support the police. I'm completely aghast at what's happening. We have the police under murderous attack. We have that police officer in Atlanta being charged with felony murder that could result in the death penalty, where the video shows he was obviously defending himself from someone who could have disabled him and then killed him a wildly political prosecution, abusive prosecution. That prosecutor shouldn't be prosecutor. Certainly in that case, if I were the state, I'd remove him. We have this violent insurrection, the secessionist movement in Seattle. They're trying to impose similar enclaves in other cities. And what's the reaction on this, on this war on police? Well, let's come up with harassing regulations that do nothing to increase the public safety, but do everything to make the jobs of the police that we rely on, the man that thin blue line, more difficult. I looked at the administration's executive order. At best, it's harmless. At worst, it sets up an infrastructure for the left to harass the police with. Same in Congress. I mean, Pelosi's bill would, you know, essentially give LaRozzi and the ACLU the ability to shut down police operate the police departments. You think the Republicans are going to stop that? I don't know. Doesn't seem like it to me. Where are the priorities here? We have our Constitution under assault from the from the from the Supreme Court. We have our our lives under our republic under attack from insurrectionists and violent leftists. And what's Congress doing? Attacking the police. Attacking the police. 
So um, now Judicial Watch is doing what we do best, which is we're investigating some of the cases that are under discussion. For instance, we filed FOIA requests related to the killing of George Floyd. Some of that information is still being withheld. Like the body camera footage. Why are they withholding it? We're suspicious. Let's put it this way. So with that being said, um, we got a lot backed up at Judicial Watch coming out this week. Uh, uh, we've got our cases ongoing in California over the uh, ballot uh, mail scheme, the vote by mail scheme by um, Gavin Newsom. Uh, we have uh, litigation still in California, excuse me, in, in North Carolina and Pennsylvania on cleaning up voter rolls there. We have the litigation on Hillary Clinton's emails. We have new information for you there. We are getting some uh, uh, more information about the uh, cover-up of both Russiagate and Clintongate, Clinton emailgate, that I'll be talking about as well. So we've got a lot percolating. I've been working on, and, and we got our first draft of the book done uh, that's coming out in October. Uh, the new Judicial Watch book called Attack on the Republic. Came up with the title before the insurrection, but it certainly is timely. Uh, so um, there's a lot going on at Judicial Watch. Uh, more lawsuits, more litigation uh, to defend our nation's sovereignty, to protect the rule of law, to protect our election integrity, and to hold the uh, deep state accountable. No one else is doing what we're doing. And I'll give you another report on update, significant update on that next week. So be sure to tune in. And in the meantime, let's pray the Supreme Court refrains from attacking a republic over the next week as they issue more decisions. I'll see you next time here on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for joining us. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.